Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. We earthling humanoids are in the process this week after the nativity excesses of closing up yet another year as though it were folded linen put away in an old trunk to be stored in an attic, perhaps to never be opened again. Already must rust and dust. We are among the connective days of Kwanzaa, which literally is a derivative of Swahili that means first fruits. The winter storms that cloak the northern half of the western hemisphere act as a chilled erasure of the recent past. And so now we might be at the start of a new age rather than simply a mere planetary twirl of a year. The essential question is, of course, given that the prolonged adolescence of this first century of an already wizened millennium is at an abrupt terminus, now what? Two paintings by the much underrated American artist Albert Pinkham Ryder, which more or less anticipated the 20th century, might be greatly enlarged to embrace the millennial angst felt by billions of contemporary earthling humans whose neuroses exuberate each new year into the frontier of this onrushing exodus of time. Ryder's most noted and provocative painting is of a pale, gray human skeleton carrying death scythe, barebone on a lean, spectral horse galloping endlessly around a circular tract, which he finished in 1910. A ghostly, greenish-yellow-gray-brown canvas, which one critic said was a light not of this world. The other writer painting, perhaps the best American painting, which might also be its simplest in form and color, was painted in the 1880s. Two black daubs of paint sitting in the stern of a black single-masted sailing boat, its black sail sharp as a knife blade, wallowing in a nearly black ocean underneath a large black cloud, shaped like a thumbprint in an ashen gray sky. Ryder titled it Under a Cloud. All at once, this painting seems to be his projection of the upcoming 20th century under this dark cloud, awash on his sinister black ocean, frail humanity depicted as the two black daubs astern, though his own sense seems an in short spirituality that might be a template for humanity's angst about converging into this latest and perhaps last millennium of its own counting. It is an almost childlike painting, except for the knowing, tremulous chill it evokes at the sight of it. I continue today's program with a reflection on the future that I wrote or more truthfully, a patchwork of previous thoughts and ruminations I have scribbled over time and have previously assaulted radio ears and brains with before. I call it, The Millennium is Us.
we are the millennium. Humanity's astute calculation of time might not fit any other world or plane of existence than our own, and even so is the compromise between observation and superstition. We who live our brief lives in the cosmic here and now are occupants of a bipartite era of centuries and millennia of our own counting. We are heirs of multi-millennia of our species and surge toward an unknown future in which we see ourselves opaquely in unfamiliar milus. Our past seems like a huge junkyard filled with discarded and out-of-date debris of no use to present or future. Yet the past grips the present with an uneasy sense that we are being propelled uncontrollably, a fearful anticipation linked with numbness from too much change too quickly. Postmodern life is too complicated and frenzied, familiar guideposts constantly ripped away. Every life, rich or poor, is a Gordian knot. Our grim perception is that we have grievously injured our home planet and that the end of our history is approaching, that ancient, apocalyptic prophecies are incited by doomsday weapons of our invention. We feel that we are out of phase, and we suspect that we have lost control or are out of control. We resist change, though it drags us along like a corpse. Change percolates chaos. It takes a long time to abandon obsolescent dogma and doctrine. Salvation of our bodies and presumed souls does not lie in elegant mythological sophistries, nor is ascension to Elysian clouds reward for a life spent on one's knees. We are at a point in our evolution in which we ought to realize that everything is in continual transition that ideas and institutions change and wear away with the same cyclical constancy as mountain ranges and ocean waves. All that is major to our lives will wither and disappear, deconstructuring while under construction, and memory of us will as well fade, vaguely recalled nostalgically as we fog into obscurity. Time's impatient neuroses does not allow lingering except in memory and perhaps personal and historic sentiment. Time seems in our short lives a linear presence in an elliptical universe, much as the near horizons seem flat on a large globe. Scarcely enough time to make oneself at home on the planet before we are personally evicted. The ineffable enigma, is this the only appearance we make as ourselves in the universe? Time cannot be held even as long as a breath. Our corroding hearts keep time for us, ticking each hemosecond that perfuses into yester pulses. Gravity nails our flesh to earth, yet spins our blood for balance through spheres of our brains on a perpetual edge of the present. 
instants swarm at us like particles and protons, or like locusts flailing at us, wearing us away. We bring to each instant a baggage of tradition and experience and a worry about death. We grasp each passing moment, impose our simultaneity on it, and reel into the next. Every moment is new, like waves from an immense ocean, each second an uncertainty unexplored and doubtful, and is instantly history, unretrievable except in memory and myth. The fabrics of human themes are woven from billions of diverse threads that dissolve into everybody moving in confused randomness with seemingly no discernible purpose as they bump into each other. Just quantum aggregates of ordinary persons doing their own thing as they flounder through time, swarming like protozoa in a drop of water. Relatively soon, our swiftly transient portion of the human narrative will be the remote past. Each day is a rebirth, but also a day closer to the crypt. Death is life's price, and the contemporary world we live in will be as much artifact as Paleolithic bones. Boiling history to the bone might be as easy as an X-ray as it recedes into an ever-remoter past, yet the bone-bare facts are superimposed with flesh, muscle, and fat of varying colors, textures, and striations. Events and personalities that occupy a certain period diminish to mere footnotes or are forgotten altogether. In general, the episodes and names that survive future erasure remain as symbols of stark or sculptural simplicities. We are wrong to think of early civilizations and the people who built them as anciently fossilized, dead, and disappeared from any relevance. They are instead the youth of our species, vigorous, wildly imaginative, avaricious, and violent. We are what they bequeathed us, an inseparable thread of our maturation. Rather than regard our ancestors as ancient, mummified grayheads, we ought to regard them as precocious neophytes in the nursery of our history. We are the old ones. We are born and live much later in Earth's age than our predecessors, whose brilliant and inspired youth constructed our own venerable mid-evolution crises. We too often scorn them as naive and primitive compared to our post-modernity and sophistication. We forget what they learned for us. Younger generations always think they are pioneers of new futures, yet they are later evolutions of our aging species, actually older in time than their parents the instant they are born. Our successors will most likely revile us with an identical patronizing contempt, if they think of us at all, as they hasten to their own oblivion and replacement until at last our self-designated species, homo sapiens, human the wise, perishes like trilobites 
and dodo birds. If human intelligence does not entirely destroy Earth, perhaps another sentient species might reach out to fill the vacuum. Maybe not. Numerous sentient humans perceive that human life and possibly all organic existence is conceivably so rare in the universe that its loss as a result of parochial conflicts over abstract principles or despotic ambitions peculiar to a point in time would be immensely more intolerable than the eclipse of axioms or aspirations, which human in origin would surely be evaporated in the Holocaust. It should seem imperative that we realize our insensate aggression and misguided prejudices will probably obliterate us and remove our species from a history we are only beginning to comprehend. By not confronting our intrinsic duality, we truly subvert to homo un or non-sapiens. By not confronting our intrinsic duality, we truly subvert to homo un or non-sapiens. A paradox that underlies our history is that the eras of greatest creativity and discovery are also the most dangerous, not least because they obversely incorporate intellectual reversion and savage descent to ignorance and intolerance, which generally coexist with every renaissance, but not always given the forum or respect of recent years. We ought to pay attention to consequences. We cannot afford any longer to blur or fake truth nor approach hard realities obliquely. It is necessary that we accept responsibility for the ravaging of our home planet and for the enormous contradictions between wealth and poverty and the abhorrent inequality they perpetuate rigorously worldwide. We might try to listen to quieter voices. We seldom hear over the angry and anguished uproar. Underneath the meanness and bellicosity that signify regression and repression is a plea to slow down the cruel-hearted lunge of political and cultural dystopia. These quieter voices, usually friendly and sane, guarantee difficult times ahead and warn us that we need each other to get there from here. We are alone in the dark and will, each of us, inescapably die. Yet we must struggle through the adversity and troublous retrogression or perish as a people not worthy or deserving to inhabit planet Gaia. We imperil the future when we lose faith in it. We endanger our descendants when we try to hide our evasive lives in vanished worlds of our predecessors. No single human can avoid death by retreating into a personal past, nor can a society survive through empty homage to a fancied simpler period or more glorious age. Romanticizing the past inhibits insights that our ancestors and their histories provide and dissolves the strength of will and brain fertility 
necessary to converge with the future. It really makes little sense to fear the future. It is, after all, where we will spend the rest of our lives. Arthur Rimbaud wrote, At dawn, armed with burning patience, we shall enter the splendid cities. And Samuel Beckett, you must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. And that was something I wrote for this new year and preceding new years, and I hope successive new years if they are granted. And now, by the old Blum process. I believe that the universe is process, processing itself. I believe that space, time, and matter energy are manifestations of process, processing itself. I believe there is a threshold where space, time, and matter energy become process. I believe that process is beyond time, beyond space, beyond matter, and beyond energy. It is eternal, boundless, formless, and forceless. Process processes. I believe that the next moment is random, but the last moment could not have happened any other way. I believe that life is in imperfect relation with process. The effects of process are that life is balanced by death, love is balanced by hate, good is balanced by evil, and light is balanced by darkness. I believe that love is living encouragement to live, grow, love, and reproduce. I believe it is the nature of life to live, grow, love, reproduce, and draw closer to process. There is no meaning to life, only a process of living. I believe that the process of living is living according to one's nature while being conscious that one's nature is in imperfect relation with process. Yet one's nature is changing and human nature is changing. I struggle against process. I cooperate with process. I trust process to process. And that was Process by V.O. Blum, which is a nom de plume for Michael Horowitz, who has written many books, lives in New Zealand, and is the brother of David Horowitz, who is a PSU, Portland State University, Professor Emeritus and Eternalist. And now, by the late Dr. Robert Brake, formerly of Ocean Park, Washington, The Politics of Kindness. A good deal of what I experienced as a boy growing up in a small North Dakota town still influences my thinking and behavior. People still say please and excuse me and good morning and hold the door open for me and indulge the free spirits among us. 
though it's irksome when the dandelions go to seed and blow onto my land. If I'm in the mood, I can make small talk, beautiful and sometimes intricate and hard for foreigners to learn, and my small talk doesn't preclude large talk. I'm a proud liberal, and the liberalism I embrace is not the sort so defiantly denigrated by right-wingers. Mine is the politics of kindness. Old-fashioned as that may seem, we liberals stand for tolerance, magnanimity, community, spirit, the defense of the weak against the powerful, love of learning, freedom of belief, art and poetry, the very things that make America worth dying for. People who call themselves conservatives stand for tax cuts and further tax cuts, using their refunds to buy a gun and an attack dog to take with them when they drive their all-terrain vehicles through the barricades of Republicansville to make a foray into enemy territory to purchase supplies. They are leading our great land into a lost new world where Social Security and Medicare will be dim memories and people can live in walled compounds with moats like in the Middle Ages. We liberals may be deeply flawed people, but we stick to our guns and believe in decency and public spiritness and refuse to hitch our wagon to yahooism and intolerance. And we support government as a necessary force for good to, quote, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, unquote. That's our democratic bedrock. We don't let people lie in the ditch and drive past and pretend not to see them. When I was growing up in North Dakota, if a neighbor's car would not start, Dad put on a parka and got the jumper cables and delivered the sacred spark that started their car. The logical extension of that spirit was social welfare and the myriad government programs with long, dry names were all very uninteresting to us until suddenly we needed one and then we turned into Democrats. We liberals are conservatives who have been through treatment. But we don't quite fit Ambrose Bierce's acerbic descriptions of conservatives and liberals. Quote, conservative, a statesman who is enamored of existing evils as distinguished from the liberal who wishes to replace them with others, unquote. I couldn't live in a country where strangers don't talk freely to each other and tell stories and air their grievances and joke about this and that, where taxes are cut and services stripped and schools go to a four-day week and the local library depends on bake sales, and police and fire protection is outsourced, and millions of Americans realize they are living in the rye on the edge of a cliff. I prefer a country where people come to know and trust each other. So if I forgot my billfold on a cafe table, I could return an hour later, and the woman at the counter would hand it to me, all the cash still in it. If I needed a light, a smoke, directions, a pen, 
or the name of a famous movie star I have been trying to remember, I could get them. But if we become a nation of strangers, that would change. Yes, America has a democratic heart. It's a generous and redemptive land where I can lift my head and know that justice and equality and a decent sympathy for the underdog are part of the music and poetry of people. We liberals honor openness of heart. And that was The Politics of Kindness by the late Dr. Robert Brake, formerly of Ocean Park, Washington. He died earlier this year. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is this program's engineer. Today, December 29th, 1607, a young American native princess, Pocahontas, spared the life of a captive invader, John Smith. And today is the birthday in 1721 of Madame de Pompadour, paramour of French King Louis XV. And today, December 29, 1607, a young American native princess, Pocahontas, spared the life of a captive invader, John Smith. And today is the birthday in 1721 of Madame de Pompadour, paramour of French King Louis XV, and immortal Spanish celloist Pablo Casals was born this day in 1876, and also the great Marianne Faithful in 1946, also the natal day of English pacifist and writer Vera Britton in 1893, and cheers for Ted Danson's birth today in 1947. Also today, in 1891, Thomas Edison was granted a patent for wireless radio. And to all you 21st century flappers and jitters bugs, Happy New Year and 2023 skidoo.